Hi there, I'm Dominic O'Key, and you're listening to episode two of Serious Play, a podcast about the immersive, collaborative, and improvisational worlds of tabletop role-playing games. In this episode, we're going to be joined by Joe Walton, a researcher, teacher, poet, and editor based at the University of Sussex. Joe's interests are wide, and they've led him to think and write about a real variety of topics, from political poetry to Star Trek, from computation to the concept of utopia. Joe is an avid player, creator, and commissioner of tabletop role-playing games. This summer, he organized an international games jam, inviting writers, illustrators, and game makers to work together and submit original games, stories, artworks, and experiments on the topics of solar punk and utopias. Titled Applied Hope, the jam wanted to explore what Joe calls brighter futures, no matter how messy and complicated those futures may be. Today, Joe joins us to discuss tabletop role-playing games, the promise of utopia, the wealth of creativity that lies beyond Dungeons and Dragons, and, of course, much, much more. Hi, everybody. Um, Thanks very much for having me. Uh, So my name is Joe Lindsay Walton, and I'm a research fellow in digital humanities and critical and cultural theory at the Sussex Humanities Lab. Um, And games is really something that has kind of been a thread throughout my research. And very recently, well, I should probably say actually that I'm, um, I'm actually two very small Dr. Joe Lindsay Waltons uh, standing on each other's shoulders in a trench coat. Um, And one of our recent fraudulent adventures has been exploring tabletop role-playing games a little bit more closely in relation to Utopia and in relation to Solarpunk. Um, And there are two aspects to that, two closely interconnected aspects. One is a forthcoming edited collection, which is also an experiment in how we do academic publishing. So I'm doing it in a much more kind of indie way, a much more kind of DIY way. I'm very lucky to have a research center and a university that's being very supportive of it, um, but I'm not relying on, on their support either. It's, it's kind of coming out one way or another. Um, and the other is a jam, a games jam that we held on itch.io a platform that is very much set up for games jams and, and makes it relatively easy, called the Applied Hope Solar Punk and Utopias Jam that ran over the summer. So tell us about how you came to integrate um, RPGs into academia, into your work as an academic. So. I think it was a convergence of several different things. One was an interest in utopia. And I was kind of interested in pushing back against the bad rep that fixed or rigid utopias sometimes have. We talk about utopian blueprints as though it's necessarily something that's bad. Um, And it kind of occurred to me 
that yes, maybe a, a very fixed, rigid utopia is a bad thing in the hands of a, a lawmaker or an official. But if we're talking about cultural production, there's already a certain kind of flexibility and gooiness and liveliness built into the form itself. So I was thinking about utopia and I was thinking about this idea of, of the map or the blueprint as something bad. Um, <laughs> and then I, my eye was caught by board games, um, tabletop analog gaming as a kind of very material, physical practice that enacts some of the um, kind of interesting possibilities of computation, of genitive computation, but in a way that perhaps escapes the surveillance systems of um, digital capitalism. And also more simply at the kind of map that is alive, that is flexible, that moves around. You know, the, the workers move, the airships move, um, perhaps the mountains move too. So that, that was kind of the starting point. Um, and then through various mutations, I um, began to grow more and more interested in tabletop role-playing. Partly, I think, because there's just such a fascinating, vibrant, interesting scene of indie tabletop role-playing design going on right now. Um, and I'm a, in some ways a, a little bit cautious about, uh, as you say, bringing it into academia because there, you know, there's a possibility there of um, ruining it. Uh, I, I, I don't think that I personally can can ruin it, but I hope not to be part of a um, a broader movement of enclosure. And I don't I don't think um, that that is happening. I think that um, there's a, a lot of kind of re respect in these collaborative. Um, interactions that I'm seeing that people are um, within academia and outside of academia are in, engaging in really, really fruitful ways. And of course, nowadays in the UK, who is truly completely and securely inside academia? Um, it's it's a very, very blurred line. Yeah, so you've uh, instigated a further blurring, a kind of productive blurring of the line. Yeah, so uh, this this past summer, the, the project that I um, got involved with, um, with a co-conspirator, Eric Stein of Vagrant Ludology, um, and through my own kind of hobby press, my hobby games press, sad press games, was the Applied Hope Games Jam. Um, Applied Hope Solarpunk and Utopia's Games Jam. So a, a Games Jam is a, a quite loose term. It can mean lots of different things. Sometimes it refers to a quite short period of time where people will get together in a room and maybe be given a prompt and they'll rapidly prototype some kind of game, um, which can be a lot of fun. Recently, Games Jams, especially as they are conducted on the site itch.io, which if you don't know, please check out. Um, you'll you will find all sorts of interesting, fascinating things associated with tabletop role-playing and associated with indie games generally there. The sorts of games jams that they have there tend to be longer periods of time. Um, so I think mine was actually three months. And it's, it's, an, <laughs> it's an opportunity to give people perhaps a little bit of community, um, a, a little bit of inspiration, and some kind of deadline to work towards. And definitely you saw that under the, under the rubric of this particular games jam, there were some people who um, kind of started from scratch and uh, created something that, that 
very, very directly responded to the prompts and resources that we shared. There were some people who were kind of working on something anyway, and they were like, okay, this might fit here, might give me a little bit of extra inspiration about how to steer it, and it will give me a, a date to work towards. And then there's also a, a kind of um, a bycatch of people who've really just about created something anyway, and they use it as an opportunity to, to share their work. And that's also fine and great. And there's some um, wonderful creations that I've come across and am indeed, as they correctly suspected, very interested in. Amazing. So you put out a sort of call for papers in a, in a strange sort of academic uh, parlance way. But yeah, you put out some prompts and you got all kinds of submissions um, at the end of a three month period. And what happens now at the end of that three month period? Are, are people invited to play the games? Um, and have you played many of them? So um, over to you, the listeners, you are absolutely invited to play the games. Please Google Applied Hope and check out some of the games and um, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about some of them in this session. Um, but also whichever ones we don't mention, check out those as well, um, all the more. Um, what happens now? Well, actually, we've got some prizes. Uh, <laughs> so while whilst this began very much as a, a kind of personal project on the side and, and disconnected from my academic research. Um, game studies and game design is kind of a growth area at Sussex. And I received some encouragement and support from my institution um, and a small part of funding. So I was able to um, create some prizes. And we're in the process now of going through the, the games. The, the bottleneck is very much me. My co-judge has um, submitted their uh, top picks, um, and I need to figure out what mine are. They're small prizes. Um, the the people that I, the designers that I uh, engaged with beforehand, because we also had a, a Discord server and a small community where people could talk about it, they all kind of all said it really was not about the money um, for them. It's not about the price. We're talking about, you know, $100 here and there. Tell us about Utopia on the tabletop. So the other aspect of this project is a edited collection. Um, which is going to involve a, a series of essays from academic researchers of all different career stages. Um, most of them tabletop role-playing gamers themselves. Some people actually kind of working on it as, as their main field of academic research, but I think the majority working on, on other things um, and bringing to bear their particular expertise on something that is a, a passion and an interest of theirs. Um, looking at the relationship between tabletop role-playing games and Utopia, but, but very, very broadly conceived. Um, if anything, as an editor, I'm trying to steer people away from devoting too much of their chapter um, to kind of plugging their uh, observations about the contemporary tabletop role-playing scene into existing discourses around Utopia. So. To what it like does does that collection is it conceived of as more a theoretical um, intervention or is it or do you or do you kind of think of it as actually quite practical in some way and that these are people who are not just thinkers of games but players of games? Uh, Utopia on the Tabletop is a academic edited collection like those that you have seen before, but it's going to be a little bit different. So. Uh, it is partly born out of a sense of some frustrations and some recognitions of opportunities of how academic publishing is working at the moment. Now, perhaps you have noticed that academic collections cost £80. Uh, this one won't. 
it will be free. You'll be able to buy it if you want. And if you do buy it, then the contributors will get a share of the income. Um, so it's done on a cooperative model. Um, it struck me that actually all the kind of skills and experience and uh, infrastructure that is necessary to produce this kind of collection, you know, it is actually available to me without going through traditional academic publishing. Um, there, there are upsides and downsides, and it's all very intricate. And of course, it's a, it's a lot of um, unpaid work, which is a, a very common thing in academia. And I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a, a perfect model going forward, but it is an exploration of what's possible in terms of academic publishing. And also the freedom that that gives us, it, it means that I can perhaps look at some, uh, depending on page count, um, some interesting creative inclusions as well. So the hope is, and it's not yet confirmed because it, it really depends on um, the final page count, but the hope is that some of these actual games from the Applied Hope Jam will be included in this edited collection. So I don't know if it will be a first, but um, it will be an edited collection that you can also play, maybe. I think it's, it's interesting that D&D is the most popular game because I think that's actually masking like this enormous diversity of things that people are doing under the rubric of D&D. Um, I suspect that if you like to investigate it sociologically, there are a lot of people who are just kind of using it as a loose framework for, for storytelling and ignoring half the rules or using homebrew stuff. So when somebody, you know, earlier you, you said um, we played a lot of D&D, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I was like, actually, I don't know what that means. Like, it, it could refer to so many different things. You just hang out in the tavern where you meet the whole time. I mean, this is like D and D, and we 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 kind of had this conversation a little bit a few weeks ago when we read the um, what was it? It was it was one of those kind of like oh, D and D is this horrible thing because it's owned by Hasbro and it's this like capitalist business making. It's all about like selling you shit. Um, and we were kind of thinking, well, that's not that's not. We don't play that like. For us, D and D is just a term for a role-playing game that that has existed in lots of different guises. And I think you're totally right. Like, you like one person's D and D is is just about like sitting in the tavern, like telling stories and you know pretending to be a wizard. And another person's D and D is that kind of historical like Gygaxian um, sort of war game, right? And it's about sitting there with a ruler to make sure that your archer has the right range on their longbow. And, and like, that's the game for, for some people. Um, but yeah, D&D has just become, it's it's like a, it's just a proxy for RPG, I think, you know, a kind of ge generic fantasy vanilla flavor of role-playing. Can I distinguish between um, kind of rules light role-playing and something that I guess you could call prompts light or support light. So um, looking through many of the submissions to the really, really exciting Applied Hope Games Jam that we ran over the summer, um, which kind of explores themes of utopia, explores the genre of solar punk, um, perhaps explores some of the things you were mentioning earlier about how TTRPGs can be spaces for participatory modeling of existing and possible social relations. Looking through all these really, really rich submissions, I, 
I had a kind of um, moment of not dismay exactly, but realizing that this was an important iteration towards something else, which is a kind of game that can really get you um, not just give you spaces to imagine the, the sorts of narratives that you've already kind of absorbed and already kind of constructed from existing media, but really amplify the recombinatory power of rules to get you telling stories that you wouldn't otherwise be telling. Um, so I'm, I, I feel like I frame that overly negatively. Um, and and I, like, I wanna emphasize how absolutely amazing and, and stunned and bowled over I was by everything that came through. But these games did get me thinking, there are a lot of kind of rules light games here, which is great, but they're also prompts light. They kind of give you a mood and a tone and they say, imagine a better future. Um, and I'm like, how, help. Yeah, that's a really interesting um, insight, I suppose, from being able to kind of look at the games together, stacked together as well, like all these different submissions and being able to draw out the patterns uh, across them. I think we've had um, similar conversations, not so much, um, you know, drawing out that insight, but around um, how games we're interested in games that I suppose um, help us not to be derivative <laughs> and to kind of go back to um, the sort of uh, tried and tested themes or, or the kind of, you know, the particular kind of flavor of a, of a, of a world. Like there will be a certain point and I, I am like a really bad culprit for it. I think there were times when we were playing the quiet year when I sort of wanted to like um, turn it into I don't know the end of another of another film or you know or like almost like uh or just to kind of give it this kind of slightly um extraterrestrial theme or um or this kind of I, I suppose uh idea of like the village and all the people turning on one another all these kinds of themes that we've kind of um that we're really used to that we're like we have these habits of thought and there's and you know so when we're playing a game often that kind of um decision or that kind of uh, trajectory will suggest itself and it's almost irresistible in the moment like you're just kind of what you can do is just take it up but i think yeah it's a good question to ask what what can stop you from doing that is it, is it possible to kind of change your own habits of thought if you don't have the, the prompts to, um, to help you to do that? I, I, was, I was just gonna say, I think, I mean, I've, I've thought about that in some ways, and maybe this is kind of turning it back into a question for Joe. Um, I mean, I, I've, when we've talked about it before, I've always thought of it in terms of genre, right? In, in terms of, when you do, when you sit down and you know you're playing like a horror game or a fantasy game, or, or you're, you're, and I mean, Mothership that we played before is a great example of this because so much of it is explicitly modeling or, or kind of um, copying the genre of alien films or kind of space horror. And there's so much kind of, so much of the fun of that is kind of playing through those tropes um and then kind of giving them a twist or whatever but i guess that's that's exactly i guess i mean that that distinction you're making between kind of prompts light versus rules light where do you see i guess my, my question would be where do you see genre sitting within that 
So a, a lot of the prompts, it seems to me, in, in indie games that I've seen recently and in this jam are in the form of questions. Um, and Liz, you were talking about like role-playing games and pedagogy, and it's like that's that's the thing that fascinates a lot of us as educators. Um, how do questions work? How do you craft the, the exactly the right question? And we all know that if you if you if you just have reworded it slightly different, you'll get a completely different response um, in, in emotionally and intellectually and kind of communally in in the classroom. So I think maybe it's interesting that um role-playing games are exploring that um on genre specifically <laughs> i think i think there's been a much more kind of reflexive attitude towards genre in um indie role-playing games design community recently there's been a lot of reflection on that and that's partly um partly to do with the the rise of power uh, powered by the apocalypse type games which have sometimes been unfairly pejoratively described as genre emulators um, and i think that part of that is also to do with analog games responding to the saturation of culture by digital games as well that digital games are, are now something that you know, a lot of people have grown up with, um, they're everywhere, they're represented as well as played and interacted with, they're watched, um, they're interacted with in ways that aren't just play, they're, you know, they're part of, of culture. Um, so there's something about the kind of powered by the apocalypse style of mechanics that to my mind suggests, I don't know if you, if you all feel this, but to my mind suggests something much more like a, an algorithm, computer programming with different units kind of activating other units, different moves activating um, other moves and possibilities um, in a way that suggests something like object-oriented um, programming. But also, what are those moves? They're essentially something like tropes. They're very, very kind of closely tied um, to, to genre. That's not to say, and you know, earlier I, I said that it was pejoratively un, unfairly described as a genre emulator. And I think that's true because there is a generative capacity to these systems. They tell um, different stories. They rely on, on what you already know and they try and activate and uncover and reconstruct that knowledge. But then they do encourage you as a group to recombine it in, in new ways, in ways that will surprise you. Um, so how far can we push that? And what, what games do we know? What systems do we know? What groups do we know? What techniques do we know that push it further than, than anything else that we've seen so far? I wonder if, if, if one of the things that it's very difficult to talk about in, in TTRPGs is the group dynamic. And, and I think that's a really interesting way of describing the Power by the Apocalypse games as kind of um, genre emulators in the, the you know, quite explicitly in a lot of games they they rely on the trope right and i can't remember the term but the way that you choose a character in a lot of these games is is the archetype right so you are like you're this kind of character and we we give it a name that you all know and recognize what they do like what their role is so you get um i'm trying to think of you know uh games like is it monster of the week that's a kind of sort of buffy spin-off and they've got an archetype that is like recognizably, you know, this character as X from this TV show, or, you know, you even get games that are explicitly, um, you know, kind of, this is, this is 
insert thing from popular culture, the role-playing game, right? So um, you've got Star Wars, the role-playing game, you've got this and this and this. And so many of those games rely on the trope as kind of like a unifying sort of waypoint. It's like, okay, we, we know if we start here, we kind of, we're all on the same page. And this goes back to what Liz was saying about kind of using these things as like almost a steering mechanism. So you can either steer towards them or steer away from them. But ultimately it's about the way that the group chooses to work with each other that, that kind of lets that unfold. It seems like a really cool thing that's been happening in RPGs recently that they, that has become more common to use a game to, to world build and to, um, you know, a, a game to kind of set up another game. Um, and it strikes me that it would be really interesting to think about the other end of it. So we've been talking about instrumentality and agency of games. So maybe there should be more games that um, kind of look back on what you've done and say, how can we... I'm not sure, uh, capture might be the wrong word, but, but how can we kind of magnify and transform what we've done together so that um, our positive utopian expectations about what's going on are, are, are realized to a greater extent than they otherwise would be. So not just um, games that world build the imaginary world at the beginning, but games that build the real world at the end. And the, there is one, it, it's quite small, but, um, gesture towards that in the games that came in for the Applied Hope sort of book and Utopias Jam. Um, and it's this really lovely, quite short game called Roots and Flowers, which is a solar punk hack of, can you guess? So you have two stats, your root stat and your flower stat. Uh, it is a hack of lasers and feelings, um, another quasi-utopian Star Trek-y type game, another great game. Um, it's by The Gift of Gabes, I think it would be pronounced. And it's only about nine pages, but about three pages are devoted to safety tools at the beginning, uh, kind of, you know, uh, session zero type stuff, the, the preparation, and then also the stuff that you do at the end, the debriefing, the, the, the reflecting back. I wonder if we could do even more in that kind of area. Yeah, I think that sounds really, really, really interesting. And so many of the games you've mentioned through the course of the conversation, I want to sort of go back and explore and play now, really. Um, it kind of reminds me, there's something that you were talking about and sort of the mechanics, it was kind of ringing bells in my head in a completely different sense um, in terms of kind of the ethics around things like facilitation. And, you know, when people, they have like things like the circle way where you have the check-in and then you have the discussion, then you have the checkout at the end, like what you were saying about the debrief. And I just wonder if, um, because having kind of um, been part of groups that use that facilitation method, I've definitely had uh, the opportunity to kind of observe how different relations of, uh, especially of trust were built between the people that were kind of participating in the group. Um, and, it, and it seems like, so this kind of goes back to the thing of things we don't necessarily think of as games. But those like um, mechanics being really productive for playing a different kind of game, maybe together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mechanics that are generative of of trust and safety. Uh, what what were you going to say? I was just going to say I think um, 
I think that that kind of ties in nicely to one of the one of the questions we um, sketched down as a possible talking point before, and it's something we've kind of touched on a little bit already. But this idea of, um, I mean, to, to, to take a kind of slightly more instrumental approach to, um, to uh, rem focusing back on kind of research as something which is embedded within uh, an academic career structure, et cetera, what does TTR, what do what do TTRPGs mean for academic publication formats or kind of dissemination of research? Is it does it kind of offer an alternative way of kind of communicating some of these things? Um, or, or I don't know. Yeah, what are the kind of affordances of, of TTRPGs as a genre or uh, something which intersects with other forms of academic or research dissemination? Um, this partly maybe gets us into the realm of practice-led research. So there's a, a really kind of rich tradition, which is well recognized in, in the UK system anyway, that um, knowledge isn't only embodied in kind of propositional form in things like essays. There are certain kinds of knowledge um, that exist better in aesthetic forms. Um, and might exist in, in things like games. I, I don't know what exactly the, the situation is kind of, uh, you know, funding wise and, and what's what's legitimate and what's not and, and what you might get from like a peer review college. But definitely, I think we're gonna be seeing more practice-led research that involves games in um, interesting ways. Earlier, uh, I, I mentioned that, um, although absolutely delighted with everything that came in for the soda punk jam um one of the things that one of the possibilities that kind of opened up for me was something that's a, a, a lot a game that's a lot more kind of or a, a set of games that are much more rich in terms of the prompts that they give you and i think that could be a really interesting place for specific academic research to feed in so what if we did have a soda punk game that has like a lot of expertise around, you know, alternative technologies and, and, you know, get like chemistry and biology and sociology and make it really truly kind of transdisciplinary and have it have that as a kind of um, a, a set of sources that makes it a, an educational game, but still not the kind of educational game that's trying to teach you any one particular thing. Um, just a really, really vast, rich set where the, the adversity that you encounter is actually the adversity of the material world as we best understand it, as captured by experts. So um, that's obviously only one very, very small example um, in relation to your question. Like, yes, let's make games that um, encode state-of-the-art knowledge in an interdisciplinary way. And I think that games have a perhaps unique capacity to mobilize concepts across disciplinary boundaries and to kind of bring them to life um, and to create on-ramps to them from lots of different levels of educational attainment and background and training and so on. Um, more generally, where does it fit in? Well, the, the pedagogy, and that's something I haven't really cracked yet because I'm a, a little bit shy, but I'm on, on the brink of it. I don't know, have, have you used have you used it in your seminars and workshops and so on? I mean, I've I've personally well, uh, we I do some I do seminars which kind of uh, lend themselves to role playing in the more traditional 
set or, or role play you know there is an established kind of pedagogical role of role playing where you do the imagine you're a local council who is dealing with xyz how would we go about solving it why would that not work this kind of thing which is which is a far more kind of free form but then the question yeah mechanics like do you want to give them wisdom and courage you know exactly yeah and then also how do you how do you model the fact that say uh you know that that also potentially produces systems where where you kind of come up with the wrong answer as it were and you kind of get discussions where it's go oh well yeah we just need to kind of raise awareness about this and you need you need some kind of mechanism for people saying well okay yeah perhaps the end goal isn't just raising awareness or perhaps further marketization it wouldn't be quite appropriate in this there might be some negative outcomes of that um yeah i mean it's it's the yeah the pedagogical thing it's so i've had some success with that and then also with assigning readings based on rolling a die um basically i'm i'm, I'm extremely conscious that when i sit down to i mean i find the kind of the preparation for running a, an rpg in itself is like a fascinating kind of activity which is so similar to research and so similar to teaching preparation and so similar to kind of various aspects of academic work in general, I think, in that when I sit down and kind of plot out uh, uh, a kind of, you know, a dungeon or something, or you, you, you sketch out a kind of plan for what might happen, it both reminds me of making ethnographic notes where you sketch out a space and sketch out who's here, who's here, who's here. And it reminds me, the, the, the format of kind of thinking about what will be an interesting, what will be the interesting preparation for, or what, what preparation do you have to do in order to enable an interesting seminar to take place is so almost identical to the preparation that you have to do for an interesting game um, yeah. that I can, that it, it stressed me out to do them both at the same time when I yeah. was doing too much teaching and I had to stop doing games for a while because it was too similar. Um, sort of shaking my head when you asked the question earlier about if I had used role-playing in my classes and um, there is an activity um, which is just for for people to kind of come up um, with their own utopia in smaller groups in the seminar which is kind of predictable given it's a class about utopia and the history of utopia and that this is like really the one opportunity with the students I teach that they have to do to do something a bit more creative and generative. And um, I, the, as you're talking, I'm thinking there is a way and it, and it would be interesting to kind of experiment with perhaps some more rules-based structure for what they do with that kind of activity um, and to maybe give it a bit more uh, of an emphasis in the class, because I think sometimes in the way we teach um, those kinds of activities kind of get edged out because you want to teach them so much content and you're like, we've got to cover this text and this text and this text. And, you know, over the course of teaching a, a few years and teaching the same thing over a few, over a few years, you, you realize that you're putting them in a position actually to do much better. Uh, sometimes if you assess them on, on these types of activities. And I suppose in that sense, it kind of, fits in with some of the conversations that um, 
some some colleagues have been having around the uni with kind of inclusive assessment and things like that as well uh, being able to put people um in the best position to do well and being able to actually assess or evaluate which is kind of a difficult thing anyway with something like that but a broader spectrum of um of skills or abilities or you know capacities to work together i feel like you should be able to give them like a fail better better mark that's <laughs> like better than a first yeah because solar punk isn't a term that i've seen used as much as things like cyberpunk right which we've you know we've we've had the term cyberpunk since the early 90s um do you think that kind of helps kind of broaden the broaden the scope of where these projects can sit right the the idea that that solar punk could mean cow hands on mars or like mining accident kind of rescues and it could be all of these other things um whereas if this was a term that you know and this is the problem that we have with you know with air quotes D and D right there's this there's this almost um homogenous view of like of what fantasy is these days that's been so kind of regurgitated and reused and to an extent with cyberpunk as well like that because everyone has this very clear idea of or, or sort of almost shared idea of what cyberpunk looks like and what the aesthetic is and what the genre is you end up with this kind of echo chamber of 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 kind of worlds that that these games create whereas with something that's kind of newer and a bit a bit kind of less clearly defined do you think that opens up a lot of possibilities for for what this thing for you know for what this genre could be or am I completely missing the mark and then like everyone knows what solar punk is and I'm just an idiot I think that um this particular games jam that uh we hosted caught a wave of people being really really interested in this term and i think you're quite right that it's at this really fruitful fruitfully vague point um, i think it does open up lots of possibilities as you say i think it also opens up possibilities for kind of uh recuperation in a, in a bad sense for for co-optation um i often think that the terms are are most interesting um, at that moment where they're sort of defined, but they're not quite locked down. Because how do they get locked down? They often get locked down because all those systems of, of power kick into place and nudge them into configurations that are going to be um, more or less innocuous to what we call the status quo. Of course, the status quo is a, a silly way of um, describing it because it is a ecocidal uh, cataclysmic dynamic that is pushing us towards cyberpunk futures of the scorched end of the spectrum. Liz, what do you think about what do you think about solarpunk in relation to utopia then? Well, um, I don't know. I think obviously being able to I, I'm thinking of solarpunk now um, in terms of the range of submissions that you received. And it's almost like I'm I'm sort of um, as I kind of flick through those submissions, I'm now trying to kind of uh, apply uh, this working definition of solar punk to what I can see there. So there's something that's kind of happening to me, you know, which always happens around definitions. It's like, um, am I just looking at a bunch of stuff? Oh no, it's um, 
it's uh, these things are solar punk. So um, now I'm going to try and make sense of them and bring them together in some way. Um, I mean, that's kind of, I suppose utopia is a bit like that, that too. It's a very kind of um, diverse field, although in the history of utopia, you do have this kind of um, history of intertextuality as well. Those kind of the way utopias have been in dialogue with one another often and sort of presenting arguments and counter arguments. Um, and I think that's because of the kind of particular narrative form that literary utopias take. There's something interesting, I suppose, in that reflection to think about for a games jam and um, these kinds of visions of utopia, are they in dialogue with each other? Whether, whether we sort of um, think about that under the banner of solar punk or under the banner of utopia, did, were you able to kind of um, to see that kind of playing out? And was there a lot of, I suppose, because when I think about utopia, obviously I do think it's, um, is it useful to keep it as that kind of very vague, broadly defined vision of a hopeful future in the sense that um, then what we're looking at can um, be encompassed, you know, were a lot of these games conforming to that idea of a better future i don't know or and were they in dialogue with each other in various ways i suppose that's a question that occurs to me um because obviously you have a better overview of that than i do so one of the things that occurred to me or that i, I realized uh is that i had grown a little bit complacent about the kind of utopian studies understanding of utopia in which utopia is commonly framed as a, a method or a process um, or a glimpse or a spark. Utopia is something that is inherently processual. Um, utopia is a critical tool. And this is a understanding of utopia that has grown up through, for example, you know, looking at, at literary criticism, things like Tom Moylan's notion of critical utopia um, looking at science fiction writers, people like Ursula Le Guin, Samuel Delaney, and many others, um, especially feminist utopias of, of the 1970s, kind of in opposition to um, 19th century and earlier literary utopias, which were perceived as being kind of overly fixed, overly prescriptive, um, and that understanding of utopia is kind of actually not one that is as <laughs> um, broadly understood as I expected. And there's one game, and I wish I could remember what it's called, and I actually can't, I can't find it now. Um, there's, there's one game in particular in the ensemble that came in that really doesn't take any of that on board. And it's just like, this is a game about living in an ideal society where everything is perfect. Um, I, I think maybe we wouldn't want too many games like that, but it was actually kind of cool just to, to you know, get back to um, that that massive provocation. Like, can you even imagine that? Like, what are you gonna actually do in your play session with your group, with your particular dynamics? That is a fascinating premise for a game because that is um, when I teach utopia to my class and we kind of look at the historical tradition of utopia, sort of so the flourishing of the utopian genre in the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century, and then kind of moving on more to the critical utopian tradition. One of the things that we often come back to is, you know, how the utopia came about and um how it can then you know once it's achieved how it can kind of hold its position as a utopia and is it desirable 
for us to live in a world of like complete harmony without any kind of contestation you know the the overcoming of the struggle basically and um it's something that you know that uh talking to people about it that is difficult to imagine and difficult to deal with so i think it's a really interesting provocation for a um for a game uh because it's kind of asking you to um i don't know almost like enact stasis in some kind of way like it, it, that's that's really interesting to me like and i can't even really imagine <laughs> what it's like to play that but I'm kind of interested because I can't imagine it the um the the stasis point and the point about utopians kind of uh collapsing decaying um which reflects a you know a history of a lot of, of real concrete utopian projects um reminds me of one really really beautiful submission called the transition year which is based on the quiet year which is obviously a, another really really um, amazing fascinating beautiful game and i think the transition year um eric stein the other person who's running the game jam with me kind of expressed it very well that it, it, it really understands the transition year really understands its source material and, and respects it and then takes it in interesting di directions. Um, but that has that kind of temporally as well as spatially delimited aspect to it. Um, So I think I think that some of my interest in utopia in relation to generative systems such as tabletop role playing games is really born out of a, a kind of sense of frustration with what the left is able to concretely imagine and aim um, and fight towards. And I totally accept that that is an absolute right wing canard. That is something that um, people knowingly or unknowingly uh, throw as a, as a false accusation, um, you know, the left doesn't know what it wants. Well, it, there's so much um, out there. Projects like prison abolition are um, essentially positive projects. They're not po projects of, of negation or eliminating or removing something from society. They're projects of creating the things that, that make those um, those kind of oppressive carceral structures unnecessary in the first place, they're projects of multiply, multiplication and creation. Um, nevertheless, I do sometimes feel like we could have, if we are going to have kind of cultural um, and abstract and uh, exploratory constructions around what it is we're heading for and what it is that we want, that there could be much more kind of anthropological thickness. I'd like to know that kind of the details of, of my everyday life in those um, those utopian futures um, with the, the, the well-known proviso that they're always liable to change um, as our, our material circumstances change and as the things that we're capable of imagining change. But in the meanwhile, I'd like to imagine them in as much detail as possible. come to think seriously about like tabletop role-playing games like how how did that come about for you 
when I was an undergraduate, I was writing an essay about the poet John Wilkinson, who's a good poet. And somehow I got involved in Mark Twain. And somehow I got involved in that scene where I think Tom Sawyer has to like whitewash a fence or paint a fence or something. And he uses a ruse. He, he kind of, uh, I, I don't know what the word is, boon swaggles, um, all the neighborhood kids. That, that's probably not the right word. He fools tricks um, the, the neighborhood kids into doing the job for him by making it attractive and desirable, by charging them actually, um, setting up a kind of little gift economy. Like, oh yeah, you know, you get the right to, to paint the fence for five, 10 minutes, but only if you give me that frog in your pocket. My memories of this are a little bit vague, um, but that really fascinated me because it seemed like it was a form of gamification, which was a word that I hadn't encountered then. Um, but it seemed like it was a form of gamification in a really kind of large and rich sense, rather than the kind of gamification that we are now familiar with, which involves metrification, league tables, a lot of disciplinarity, um, you know, not, not a broad sense of the power of the ludic to kind of transform any situation. And although Tom was um, manipulating people in a ethically suspect way, what really fascinated me was the fact that the, the, the drudgery of painting this fence did get done and it got done through affect of delight and interest and rivalry rather than that kind of um, dull grind. So partly that was the storytelling and the framing, partly that was maybe some kind of spirit of, of rivalry and partly it was the power of storytelling and the power of games. So I think that was really my, my starting point um, for thinking about serious gaming um, and the instrumentalization of, of games, the, the kind of power and uses of games. So I don't know if we, I've been doing like loads of sweeping statements. So I'm just gonna try and make them even more sweeping. I think serious games are bad. I, I think they're boring. And I don't think anyone has ever played one. Uh, okay, this is an exaggeration, but I, I do. <laughs> we were talking with students the other day about um, serious games and they were just kind of annoyed and I was like oh, you know I don't, I don't blame you I would also rather be talking about like um portal or, or the quiet year or something um but and and the, the way I kind of defended it defended these games was saying well look we don't need to compare them we don't need to compare them to the games we play for fun let's compare them to what these tasks would be like if we hadn't kind of gamified them um let's compare them to um you know a, a a less ludic form of training or pedagogy or whatever it might be, um, which is fine. And, and, and it's great that they can exist in that niche. But I do wonder if there could be more to it than that. Um, I do think that serious gaming as a whole might actually have a lot to learn from actual games, <laughs> um, from, from, from games that are played for, for these other reasons. And I am really interested in the way that games that don't come out of that um, uh, very that don't come out of that kind of serious games context have also recently been 
thematizing the possibility that they're not just for fun, they're not just for entertainment, that they might have other kinds of uses and agencies in the world. So, for example, some of the games in this um, Games Jam that have that have come in, um, looking at a much wider range of kind of affect, for example. And I, I think maybe I would just tie that again to some of the themes of, of queer game studies, and in particular, um, the reclamation of different sorts of feelings that are traditionally have negative associations, um, anger and sorrow and grief and so on. Um, and the recognition that these feelings have value, um, which has a, a kind of, you know, the, the celebration of feeling per se has a kind of crypto materialist vibe to it. In other words, um, it is kind of, in, in a in a uh, sidelong way saying well you know this isn't just about what's going on in our hearts this is about what's going on in society we should have a material society where feeling these things isn't dangerous it's not dangerous to to feel kind of deep sorrow and anguish because you have the resources and the people and um the love if that's what you what you need to to support the particularity of that experience and everything that might come out of it. Um, so although it is a kind of turn to affect and a celebration of affect, I think it is also still about the material world. Um, can, can I just, sorry, mm. sorry. Oh, I was gonna say, could you just, can I just clarify what you mean by serious games in that context then? Or is, oh, okay, there's something that you're kind of in, in opposition to that. I wasn't, do you mean like as in, the, the game of academic careers or the kind of reviewing viewing serious matters as a kind of as a as a game or was it as, as, different? A, as a as a core kind of concept that I'm anchoring serious gaming on uh, it would be something like um educational games I think maybe um a good way of of capturing the distinction is like where they have come from these games um and what the designers motives are so the designers might well be a you know a, a game design consultancy that has been hired by some probably extremely um often in, you know important project doing important work to create some sort of um experience that may well do good things in the world um but when we when we kind of assess them more more broadly as people who have some experience of what games are actually like if they if they were not doing that valuable work we would not go anywhere near them so i'm i'm kind of comparing that kind of instrumentality that kind of use with other games that we we do play for fun but twist um i think that those games that we that we do play for fun or for other reasons also have their own kind of instrumentalities and uses and agencies and that's what i'm interested in really is the the connections and the resonances and the differences between those two yeah it seems like a bit of a false dichotomy to me to say that one group of games is serious and the other group of games is not serious um it kind of goes back to like the kind of historically pejorative associations attached to utopia as well and um not to kind of dwell on that too much, but the idea that utopia is just like fantasy, utopia is used as a synonym for something that's unrealistic, um, you know? And, and so, and actually, um, yeah, like in terms of the way 
political possibility is constructed, of course, utopias are unrealistic, but that's why we should be very serious about them. So this is How to Ooze Charm in the Future, a solar punk storytelling game by Paul Sager. There are no prisons in the synths. Crazy? It's not like people don't still commit crimes, even terrible crimes, murders, assaults. The thing about the justice system in the before is its punishments aren't applied equitably and its prisons are corrupted into labor forces for private industry. So in the synths, there are none. But then what about the people who commit crimes? So maybe tell of your character meeting someone who committed crimes. Did they do them in the before or the since? They'd be incarcerated in the before, yet somehow they've achieved remittal for their crimes. But how? Were they absolved by their victims? Did they make reparations? Did they work through their traumas with a therapist? Or find some greater purpose somehow? Tell how your character meets and learns their story. This episode is part of a Sadler seminar series at the University of Leeds, and it's made possible by the Leeds Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Thanks for listening.